Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Lawyers in the Making podcast. I'm your host, as always, Nate Crespo, and today we have another fantastic guest. He's a graduate of the Duke School of Law and is currently working at his very own Berman Law Office in Albany. He's held a previous job as a grant writer and researcher at Church Avenue Merchants Block Association, as well as having years of experience volunteering his time towards advocacy and support organizations. It is a privilege to have him on the show today. Mr. Carl Berman, welcome to the show. How are we doing today? I'm doing. Thank you so much for having me. Now, Carl, before we start, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? So that's a great place to start, Nate, because I'm a writer and from a very, very early age, meaning like about eight, I was writing poetry and stories and I always wanted to be a writer, but I always knew that that would be a challenging way to make a living because I didn't want to be a starving artist. So law seemed like a natural segue with my talent at telling stories. And um, it's taken a long time to sort of play that forward because I'm 62 years young. But when I look back, I realize that at my core, I'm a writer and someone who loves to tell stories and play with language. So law is very different than that in, in terms of fiction versus nonfiction. Law is decidedly on the nonfiction side of that equation. But that's really who I am. That's in a nutshell. Absolutely. So now let's start at the beginning. Cultural anthropology at Columbia University. Correct. And then you end up at the Duke School of Law. Yeah. Why law school? I mean, culture and anthropology, I'm not sure if that has anything to do with the law. It does. Oh, it does. Okay. Well, it has everything to do with who I am. And it's a different topic than just writing in general. I was always politically left and very activist. And I ended up writing a thesis um, as an undergrad at Columbia on um, a topic that I devised called reactive um, reactive cultural and ethnic identity. It's way too complicated uh, to go into and it's not on the net. I should probably update it and put it on the internet. But the point is, I was interested in how cultures form and how cultures interact and how cultures sometimes cause conflict among amongst each other from a from a political, a really progressive political standpoint. That was my whole framework as an undergrad. And I went to law school because I thought, well, what am I going to do with this? I mean, anthropology is a great subject, but what am I going to do with it in the real world? I can't do like little, you know, micro studies of different subcultures in the U.S. and uh, then just go publish them. That I wanted to do something in the real world, and um, law seemed like seemed like a good segue from it. Um, you're nodding, so. Um, I'm, 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 I guess I'm, I'm persuading you. It, it seemed like a good, a good move. And I guess the powers that be at Duke agreed because they knew what I had done um, before I, you know, applied and they decided to let me in. <laughs> so talk about the first year of law school. I know for some people it's very traumatic, for some people it really wasn't. But... It was, it was quite traumatic. Yes. All right. But describe your experience. Well, what I want to tell you is that Duke has transformed itself. First of all, Duke likes to consider itself the Harvard of the South, and that comes with a lot of baggage. Um, I didn't get into Harvard. I didn't get into a lot of my ideal schools. Like you, I'm from the Northeast, and um, so I had you know delusions of grandeur of going to a top top ranked law school 
because Columbia is an Ivy League school and that didn't happen, but I did get into Duke. However, Duke in the 80s was very, very conservative, very corporate. And I had this progressive pedigree and very activist orientation. And um, it was very traumatic, very traumatic. However, I reached out beyond the four walls of Duke University and I found a mentor. And, um, you know, this is a podcast, so you're at a disadvantage. But right here on my shelf, uh, which you can't see, you're looking at a virtual shelf. But right here on the actual shelf is a book called Rights on Trial, The Odyssey of a People's Lawyer by my mentor, Arthur Kanoy. And Kanoy was a professor at Rutgers Law School who was also an activist in the 50s um, in terms of the Red Scare of the 1950s and then in the 60s with Dr. Martin Luther King. He was one of King's many lawyers. King, King was such a big personality and such a big force that Dr. Martin Luther King had multiple lawyers. But uh, Professor Kanoy was one of um, King's lawyers and it's all in his book. And when I read his book, I said, oh my God, I got to meet this guy. And he was, he was very receptive. And in fact, he came down and I invited him down to do law school and it, it caused a big tumult because a lot of people there were locked into the idea sort of, if you've ever seen the movie um, Paper Chase, and there was a book based on that, uh, that you go to law school to, to become sort of, you know, what the law is, and you have to abandon all your prior delusions about what the law represents in order to become a good lawyer. So people were frustrated and people were looking for answers. So we brought, so a group of us brought down Kanoi and a guy from Harvard, uh, Duncan Kennedy. And now Duncan Kennedy is another amazing person in, in, in my experience because Duncan Kennedy was the lead, one of the leaders of a group called Critical Legal Studies. Critical Legal Studies was actually the precursor to uh, critical race theory. So it's really incredible because 90, back in 1984-85, I was sort of there at the ground level for some of today's huge issues because BLM in many respects is an outgrowth of critical race studies, which is an outgrowth of critical legal studies. Now, Duncan Kennedy, I believe, is retired. Arthur Kanoy passed away. But his book, Kanoy's book, is right there on my shelf because I still consider myself a people's lawyer. However, coming back to your question, it was a very, very difficult transition because notwithstanding all these nice ideas, I was learning property law and I was learning contracts and I was learning criminal law. Um, which was nothing like what I thought it would be. And I struggled, you know, and and um, I debated whether this field was for me or not, but I, st I stuck with I stood with it. I, st I st stayed with it. And and after, you know, surviving first year, uh, things picked up. So you had two. There's a couple of points I, I want to touch on there. Obviously, uh, I'll, I'll segue into another question that I kind of have. Uh, with Arthur Conoy and Duncan Kennedy, them kind of being, uh, you know, prominent attorneys at the time. And obviously you speak of the book that Arthur Conoy had. Uh, were there any other books that kind of helped you throughout law school, kind of figure out what you want to do or any articles at that? Uh, figure it's, out? So, it's so long ago that I'm afraid your listeners won't really find the same resonance. Like whatever, whatever inspired me then, um, I don't even remember, honestly. But the fact of the matter is that when you're in law school, you have so much on your plate in terms of reading that unless it's truly, truly essential, it's going to end up feeling like a distraction. You know, what happens is in first year law school, the pile of reading is just so overwhelming. And, you know, 
It's actually funny. And again, your your listeners don't have the advantage of seeing my face here, but this this shelf that you're looking at has actually a law school casebook on torts and a horn book on on criminal law. And so I've saved those things for decades because once I read them and mastered them, it was very meaningful for me to go back to them. But there's just a vast, vast amount of reading. And so beyond those few really core books that gave me inspiration, um, it would be like, oh, let's put Jeopardy on. Oh, let's play, put Wheel of Fortune on, like something mindless. You know, let's just tune out. Oh, a Friday night, let's go to the bar. You know, and honestly, I was more serious than that, but I've gone back to reunions and the people I gravitate to now are the ones who are like, oh, remember Thursday nights at such and such bar downtown because Durham, Durham, North Carolina is a very, was a very quiet town, but there were a couple of really great bars and you would run into the, you know, the people that, that you liked and it was friendships that, that got us all through. It was a core group of other human beings that that's that rescued us and and you know um you know you and i are both in albany which is much much bigger than a town like durham uh, but if you end up in a school in a small town it's really important to have human connections because you can just get lost in your own head and lost in ideas so kind of building off of that uh i know you said it's important to have those human. oh wait 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 and i did forget something else you're asking about articles no because I'm the son of two professors, my mom was a professor of mathematics, my dad was a professor of physics, I really glommed on to a lot of my instructors. And I mean, I know you can relate to this, Nate, because you said you're a philosophy major, so mm -hmm. and you're pre-law, so you're obviously someone who's got a mind and an aptitude. I never was shy about knocking on the professor's door. Now, depending on what university you end up at for law school, it can be a bit intimidating because sometimes they don't have time for you. But I found invariably that professors were very, very receptive to that. And so in a dark moment, in a, in a desperate moment where I just don't know what I'm doing, the answer usually lay in just reaching out to the professor saying, hey, I'm struggling. I need extra help. Could you spare half an hour for me? Next thing you know, I've got a personal friend. It was amazing. It was amazing. And that's due. I can't say that about um, you all, about Albany Law School, for example, or you know, a school like Columbia, because I didn't go to Columbia and each school is different and I, each professor is different. But but by and large, I think professors are there to help the students. And when they find out that a student is struggling, they want to help turn it around. So I think that's very important. <clears throat> I think that's a really important point as well. I, I think a lot of people get in their head. I've definitely done it myself as well. Uh, kind of thinking, you know, oh, I don't get a little nervous, like, you know, I'm not really sure what to do, kind of overthink everything. But at the end of the day, they are there to help us to an extent. Exactly. Um, but kind of speaking on that as well, uh, can you kind of describe, I know you talked about how Arthur Kanoi was very much a mentor to you. Can you explain or describe the real yes. importance of having a mentor or mentorship in general? Yes. <clears throat> um, so... Mentorship in the law is an amazing thing because if you look back in the history of this profession, law school was fairly late to the game. In other words, there were lawyers for many, many years, decades, if not hundreds of years before there were even formalized programs of study and education in the law. Uh, I mean, our American legal system goes back to the medieval times in England um, and 
there were no academies of law per se, and it was all based on apprenticeship. And um, if I'm if I'm accurate in my understanding of legal history, mentorship, apprenticeship, and mentorship with 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 senior experienced lawyers. So, for example, Abraham Lincoln, I believe, you know, apprenticed in a, in a law office of some kind, and um, look 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 what he accomplished without a formal law degree so um those personal connections can be just invaluable and and by the same token you can really go wrong if you find someone that you think is guiding you and they're not they're not helping people can fall down rabbit holes very very easily in 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 the law i think that's really interesting i didn't i didn't know that the you know you needed an apprenticeship and there was no formal legal schools uh, i think it's really interesting to me that the the legal system in the united states was built upon the fact of mentorship and with law schools now it's kind of not getting away from that but it's not exactly like oh you need a mentor it's more of like oh you should just search out to it but i think it you, you know you, you touched on the very utter importance of really having that mentor and being well, to explore the field. I want to qualify my answer because actually I'm I'm realizing as I, as we're talking about it that the topic of, you know, mentorship is also tied in with with uh, clinical education. And so uh, the the um, the academy the legal academy has has reformed itself, revolutionized itself since the 80s because clinical education was in its infancy in the 80s. And it was it was the hallmark of schools like CUNY, um, which was started as a public interest law school. And I think Boston University, if memory serves, there were a handful that were doing clinical and the other law schools were all doing, you know, the case method. Um, and that was the model. Right. So you learn from sort of hypotheticals and it's all very brain oriented and uh, theoretical. <clears throat> Uh, Socratic, the Socratic method. And there was a trend away from that starting in the 80s towards clinical education. And now it seems like everybody is doing clinical. Everybody's doing clinical. And people are looking at the Socratic method as something very dated. So the topic of mentorship is very tied up with the idea of clinical education. And I'm a huge, huge proponent of, of clinical education. However, I want to come back to Arthur Kanoy because, you know, we're not talking in a vacuum here. And I'm someone who's been out of school 36 and a half years, and I have honed my own philosophy, my own method. And the reason that Kanoi was so central to me was, A, he was a phenomenal human being. He was just a decent, caring mensch, and he would spend time on the phone with me, even in the middle of his busy life. And B, because his idea made sense, which was he was a people's lawyer. Now, for Kanoi and for radical progressive leftists, of my generation, that meant something very specific. The idea of being a people's lawyer was that you were a lawyer for a movement, you were a lawyer for the cause. So let's say your client was the union, which is what Kanoi did in the 50s and in the 60s. Or let's say your client was Dr. Martin Luther King and the Southern Poverty SPLC, Southern Poverty Leadership. So your client was the movement, it was the people. No, 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 I don't do that. I am a family lawyer, I am a criminal lawyer, and I'm an appeals lawyer. But by the same logic that Kanoi used, I am a people's lawyer because I'm client-centered. And I don't want to trivialize the, the philosophy that Kanoi uh, advanced, 
and he taught it. And there's a whole generation of lawyers who revere Arthur Kanoi, many of whom are older than me. So I'm actually dating myself when I even talk about this. But I think that the idea should be modernized in the context of what you're asking, which is mentorship. I'm sorry, not mentorship. It should be modernized with respect to being client-centered. A client-centered lawyer is a people's lawyer because a client-centered lawyer is culturally attuned to the client's uh, specific experience and the client's worldview and the client's needs. And it's as simple as that. It's what a lot of people are doing in, in, in law schools today, but it just puts a nice sort of overarching vision on it and it connects it back to a very progressive uh, ideology, if you will, that goes back again to the civil rights movement and even further. Yeah, uh, I actually was uh, privileged enough in my last semester, I had taken a class called Public Law, um, professored by Matthew Kirk, best teacher in the world. But uh, he had talked about critical legal studies, and he had also talked about uh, the transformation of law school uh, in terms of, you know, what what kind of ideas are floating out in the world and how, you know, the, the lawyers of yesterday and the lawyers of today and kind of what they're going to look like in the future, because like you said, like kind of the people's lawyer and, you know, what kind of causes are they looking to promote? But as well, you you spoke of certain experiences, you know, you said your first year of law school was a bit difficult for you. Can you kind of speak of uh, a negative experience that you had that kind of, you know, told you well, maybe this isn't for me? And sure, sure, uh, sure. And also it's, positive experience where, you oh, know. Oh, I would love that. Yes. Um, so negative was criminal law. And ironically, because I'm a criminal lawyer, I literally came this close to flunking out of criminal law. Mind you, when you get into a school like Duke, I don't know how it is with with sort of second tier and other you know lower lesser ranked schools but when you're at a top 10 law school like duke and you're struggling it's not that they call you in on the red carpet to the dean's office when you get a score you know and if i'm memory serves the grades were on a scale uh 4.0 was your perfect score mm -hmm. for grades and i bombed criminal law and i got like 1.5 or whatever it was it was the lowest possible grade i could get above failing and the professor knew i really really struggled and that was upsetting because I always loved this topic. I was fascinated by this topic and I guess I just took it too seriously. And I just, I couldn't relate to what the professor was doing. So obviously didn't meet up to his standards, but positively you asked about first year or can I, can I broaden? Oh, broaden out. Second year, my favorite class by far was family law. So I don't remember the gentleman's name, the, the, the criminal law professor in first year. And maybe it's better that I don't mention his name because God forbid if he hears this podcast, he might be really insulted and think he did something bad because here I am a criminal lawyer and I'm rather good. I mean, I'm not great, but I'm rather good as a criminal lawyer. Oh, you know what? Scratch that. Let's it, just to keep the topic going. Second year, I also I took a family law class, which I loved. But I also took criminal procedure, constitutional criminal procedure. What a wonderful, wonderful contrast because criminal law was all about theory and it was about concepts like mens rea, which is to say the state of mind. It's a Latin term for the state of mind. And you can't, you can't really, you can't really prosecute someone for a crime unless you articulate what their state of mind was. And their state of mind has to match up with an articulable 
mens rea in, in a given statute. And so that's a very theoretical question. But criminal procedure by the 1980s was defined by a whole body of constitutional jurisprudence from the Warren Court from the 1960s and onward. And it's very, very exciting. And my my professor, who again, I don't remember a lot of these names. It's just, it's just tough. He was, he was a great guy, but also the cases were just amazing. The cases that the Warren Court handled were just amazing. And I started reading these cases and they like jumped off the page because it's like cops and robbers on a much higher level. It's truly, truly amazing about the Fourth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, and the Sixth Amendment. And then you go back to the Fifth Amendment and you look at, at the Fourteenth Amendment and how, how the civil rights amendments made the constitutional protections of the of the Fifth Amendment applicable to the states. And again, I'm no I'm no great constitutional scholar. I'm not I'm not going to I'm just a very humble litigator in state court. I don't hang out in federal courts. I've never I've never brought a case to the U.S. Supreme Court, although I would like to. So I'm talking from a very humble, modest perspective here. But but you know, your question was. What was a bad experience in law school? What was a good experience? So criminal law was horrible because I struggled and I almost failed. But criminal procedure was something I was like, I was in the first row. I was like at the edge of my seat. I asked a lot of questions and I really learned a lot. And I thought, gosh, you know, I could see myself as a defense lawyer. I could see myself as a prosecutor. This is just really fun. This is what I call like juicy stuff where, you know, you, you get this feeling like, oh my God, I don't want that class to end. I don't want this 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 decision that I'm reading to be over because it's just so interesting. This topic, I could just go back over it and keep going with it. And that's that's sort of where the light bulb went on. And I'm like, oh, I, I really want to become a lawyer. So let's move beyond law school now. You, you, sure. gra you graduate, I believe you interned, I forget where, I think it was the, the defense, something defense. Right, correct. I interned with a group called National uh, uh, NAPL, National Association for Public Interest Law, and that led me into fundraising rather yeah. than litigation. Yes, yeah, so you did not do law coming out. Correct, of correct. You correct. had went to Canva, Church Avenue Merchants Block Association. Correct, correct. Uh, and you were a grant writer and researcher. Can you describe your experience a little bit there and why you did not choose to, to immediately start practicing law? Or anything well, like I struggled a lot with the New York bar. I took it a couple of times and didn't pass it. And meantime, I had taken jobs in fundraising because I was like Kanoi, an activist type. And I thought the solution to society's problems lay outside of the courtroom, honestly, with policies and programs and human services. So I thought I could use my law degree in the service of community needs, because I was interested in poverty, I was interested in uh, anti-war and uh, trying to take government away from building bombs to building, you know, schools and services to help help ameliorate problems. So I ended up with this not-for-profit um, refugee resettlement house in Brooklyn. Now you're from Long Island, so I don't know if you know Brooklyn very well. There's an area uh, in Flatbush that is known for attracting refugees and immigrants from all over the world. Mm -hmm. And it's Church Avenue. Church Avenue is like the center of that in 1993. I don't know if it's still true in 2023, but Church Avenue was an area known for like 200 languages spoken within about a five mile radius. 
It's just incredible, incredible. And when I say, you know, refugees, I'm talking about from countries like Haiti, where there's always wars, countries like the former Soviet Union, where people were fleeing um, oppression of various kinds, um, countries like, like, like the People's Republic of China, where, where, where dissidents were being persecuted and locked up, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So Church Avenue is really a fascinating place. And I got a job at CAMBA, Church Avenue Merchants Block Association, as a grant writer. And um, they were a funny place because they had a relatively small budget of about maybe a million to $4 million a year. And by the time I left, their budget was over $20 million and they, were served, they went from serving about 5,000 clients a year to over 50,000 clients a year. And we were writing, we were getting approved for grants from um, federal, state, and uh, city uh, agencies. Um, we were getting grants from foundations, from corporate foundations, so private foundations, corporate foundations, um, and individual donors. It was quite extraordinary. And it all from a very modest, basically converted warehouse on Church Avenue uh, near Flatbush Avenue, really in the heart of Flatbush. Quite an interesting experience. I was there for about eight years and I learned a lot about fundraising, program development, community needs, and um, policy, policy issues because I did a lot of research for them. So it was a very exciting time in my career, but I also eventually became disillusioned with not-for-profit because I felt like I have a law degree here and I'm not using it, you know, and I was studying for the bar again because it was always eating at my, my, my ego that I got this law degree on the wall, but I don't have a bar certificate. You know, I'd taken the bar a few times and then I got so busy in life that I just never went back to the bar exam. So meanwhile, I was studying for the bar again and, it was just a ridiculous time in my life. I was in my mid thirties. I was, uh, you know, working in fundraising and um, wanted to sort of play forward. So I, that, that, that led to the next stage of my career. Now, before we get to the next stage of, of your career here, yep. I just want to ask a little bit about the sort of skills that you kind of honed in on at Canva and even previously in law school uh, what kind of skills are important in going to law school or even beyond law school? I know you did a lot of researching and writing, and that's a very big part of the law. Can you kind of describe yeah. the sort of skills? Well, it's three things, I think. It's research, writing, and then it's people skills. Because no matter how good you are at your research and your writing, if you're not good at, at navigating all the personal politics with other lawyers, judges, and with clients, then that stuff kind of doesn't help you go go forward so it's those three things research writing and interpersonal stuff um i i'm i'm writing it down now <laughs> uh so i could save it for later and and, and know those things that's my personal opinion that, that's great though but so the next step you start berman law office in albany what made you come back to the law? I know you're still taking the bar, so I'm I'm assuming the no, bar. No, no, no. We just moved to Albany. We just moved to Albany in 2019. Um, I created the Berman Law Office in 2004 after I got married, um, because um, first of all, I couldn't support a family doing fundraising. It's just a reality. And with a law degree, especially a degree from a school like Duke and a degree from a school like Columbia, there's a lot more money to be made. 
um, looking at it just at an hourly basis, irrespective of getting a nine to five job. If you're a consultant, um, you know, and at that point I was already uh, 15, 20 years out of law school. So the reality was with my resume, I was going to work for myself. It was just a reality. And this is something very important for you to understand. I took a very unorthodox path out of law school. And um, even, even by the year 2004, there were no law firms that would be able to find a home for me. It was just no matter how they constructed it, I was not a rainmaker and I was someone in mid-career. So for a firm to bring me in would require too much training and too much sort of transition to make that work. So I knew that and I was looking for a way to build that, build it forward so I could create my own law practice. So I've always been an entrepreneur and without even bothering to interview with law firms, once I passed the bar and I decided to throw out my own shingle, I knew I was on my own. It was just a reality. And the only option I had was to bring on a junior associate and um, that, that never happened. So I've always been basically a solo practitioner. Like you said before, I think it was as well important you made the point that your path was unorthodox because this is that's a big principle or precept of this show that there is no one straight path in the law or going mm -hmm. to law school. Uh, Correct. Can, Correct. Can you kind of speak about um, your experience in starting your own form, uh, uh, law firm and you know what kind of influenced that decision and how it's been? The only way I can answer that question is to say you're either an entrepreneur or you're not. And being 62 years old, I obviously am because I've started a number of businesses. I started a not-for-profit, uh, two of them, two of them. Mm -hmm. I started a charity in law school um, which is quite successful. The Duke Public Interest Law Foundation or Duke PILF um, still exists to this day. And I launched it in 1987 as a third year law student. And I'm very proud of that. I also, about 10 years later, started a nonprofit called Safety, uh, Survivors of Abuse, Violence and Trauma, SAVT. But then we changed it when we got incorporated to just Safety, S-A-F-E-T-Y, Safety Incorporated which was an advocacy group around issues uh, about child abuse and domestic violence. And I was quite successful for over five years. Then I created my own law firm. So I've actually been a serial entrepreneur with a multiple of different businesses. This one is for profit. The other two were not for profit, but they're all things I'm proud of. And the bottom line is, you know, in hindsight, I would say you're either an entrepreneur or you're not. For example, my wife, Beth, recently started her own aesthetics business, which means she gives people facials and uh, skin peels. And I've been very, very supportive of that, all the while knowing that she's either got what it takes to succeed or she doesn't. And there's nothing I can do to kind of guarantee the success of that because it's her vision. It's her idea. And the beauty of America is that lots of people try to launch businesses. But the other irony of it is, or the bitter truth of it is that Many, many entrepreneurs fail. Many, many visions for for small businesses uh, end up with complete bust. And it's just the nature of the thing. So looking back in hindsight, I had what it takes. I had the drive to create my own law firm um, because it's something deeply rooted in my personality, right? And I have that fighting spirit and that self-confidence. Um, would I 
recommend it for anyone else? Sure. But if the alternative is like, if someone comes to me right out of law school or five years out of law school, I would be very cautious about urging them to go start their own practice unless I knew that they had what it takes. Because if they had a viable option to, that was more financially uh, conservative, um, I wouldn't want them to, to, to risk it all for you know, self-employment and then learn later on that it didn't work out. So I actually have a, per, a, a personal question myself. Um, I'm, I'm quite interested in entrepreneurship, even though I am planning on going to law school. It's just, a, a, it's a little, I don't know, I guess it would be a hobby. I don't know. Um, but I, I like looking into it. And with entrepreneurship, you're always selling yourself and you always have to sell people on the idea that, you know, you should invest in this or, you know, you should buy into this. Can you kind of speak about selling yourself, the importance of it and how kind of to do it? I don't see it as selling myself. I see it as selling the product or the service. Mm -hmm. um, business is a very humbling experience. And uh, my philosophy in business comes down to something I learned from a group called BNI, which stands for Business Networking International. And it's a networking organization for entrepreneurs um, that's all over the country. In fact, it's global. BNI is an international movement. And they, they, uh, they coined this philosophy through their founder, Dr. Ivan, Ivan Meisner, giver's gain. Giver's gain, giver's gain. It's the golden rule. It's um, the idea that you should be extremely charitable, not because it reflects back on you, but because it will strengthen the other person. And what strengthens the other person reflects well on you. And eventually you'll get something back. Most people in business are mercenaries or transactional. They're, they're like, what's in it for me? I'm not gonna do something for this person unless I know in advance what I can get back from them. And that's never been my approach. Mm -hmm. And I've proven to myself over time that I can be decent. I can be what, you know, the Yiddish word mensch, which just means basically a good person. And, and, and I can make a living at it. And I can make a profit. And I don't have to be like your stereotypical, you know, stab the other person in the back and this and that. It's the opposite. Um, I've never been that way. And it took me a long time to realize that I can be myself in business and not have people take advantage of me. So entrepreneurship is very fascinating for me because the stereotype is it's all cutthroat. Mm -hmm. And I find it's the exact opposite. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think, you know, what you put out, what you put out in the world, good or bad, always, always comes back to you. I'm, I'm a big believer in that. And when you constantly put good out in the world, you always, always, it always comes back to help you. Not always, not always, but sometimes then, and I'm Jewish, but I'm going to quote the New Testament here. Then you have to turn the other cheek because every now and then someone will mess you up and screw you over and they will just take from you. And you know, the temptation, I'm a litigator, the temptation is, is, is to fight fire with fire. And you have to be very careful of that because there are bad apples in every bunch. Um, it's just human nature. It's just human nature. And so you have to pick those fights. You have to be careful uh, when you're picking fights, not to take on a fight that that's uh, unwinnable because um, again, life is short. Um, you want to have balance. And so entrepreneurship is all well and good, but you got to stay, stay focused on your mission. So if you have a bad year because a couple of clients or a business 
deals or partnerships or whatever didn't work out doesn't mean that you're going to use those experiences to completely readjust your mission. For example, Safety Incorporated was doing quite well and I got steered off course and it blew up. And after a couple of years, I decided that I had to dissolve it. And by that point, I had really impactfully done an enormous amount of work, but for various reasons that I don't want to go into, it just no longer was tenable and I had to fold up shop. That's because I had steered the business in the wrong direction. And I knew it at the time um, and I, I didn't regret it. I mean, the mission that Safety Incorporated was, 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 uh, was focused on it was a very valid mission and it was much bigger than Safety Incorporated. The mission was combating domestic violence, educating people about inter, interpersonal violence um, and supporting victims process to become survivors. That is a huge, huge, you know, topic and it's vast. It's actually vast. Um, the work has continued long after Safety Incorporated was dissolved. Um, so the, the moral of the story is you do what you can and businesses have a life cycle. They start, they grow, and inevitably they either grow so big that they have to sort of be acquired by somebody else or they stop growing and then they stagnate and then they die. It's mm -hmm. just the nature. Business has a life cycle. And so entrepreneurship is one part, part of that process. So uh, another question I have here, just a little bit about your experience, uh, you know, having your own law office. Uh, what what's something? What what's been your favorite experience? What's been you you know your most valuable experience? Something you'll never forget for the rest of your life, kind of experience. Um. Sure. So. Um. Uh, we'll go. I'm going to try and tell the story really quick. Okay. But I am a storyteller, so unfortunately, my stories tend to be a little long winded. We'll go back to about 2005, 2006. I was doing criminal defense work, 18B. Now in New York State, there's a law uh, called the county law. County law is a very, very long statute that has many, many subsections pertaining to counties. And New York State has 52 counties or something. So it's a very long technical statute. Article 18B of the county law is specifically about the need for lawyers <clears throat> Uh, outside of an institutional public defender, okay? So every county in New York State has has one or more organizations like a legal aid society or a public defender. In Albany County, where you live and where I work, there's a public defender. There's also um, a conflict defender because very often the public defender can't represent someone because, you know, um, the person that's accusing this client is actually a client of the public defender. So that's impossible. So the public defender can't represent the victim and the defendant, right? So then they go to the conflict defender. Well, what if the conflict defender has the same problem? Then the case goes to a lawyer in private practice under Article 18B of the county law. So by 2005, 2006, that was really one of my main areas of practice, like 75, 80% of my clientele were assigned to me, folks who could not afford their own lawyer. And I had a guy, I had a guy named Eric Hofstede, 
and there's no secret about his name because you can Google the name and you will find an enormous amount of error about, about this case. Eric Hofstad was arrested for begging, okay, because at that time there was a law in the books in New York State that loitering for the purpose of panhandling was a violation, not a crime, meaning not a misdemeanor or not a felony, but a violation whereby the maximum penalty would be, I think, 15 days in jail. If you really were in bad luck, you could just get a fine for it. But if you were someone with a long history, you could get, I think, up to 15 days in jail for one arrest for loitering for the purpose of panhandling. Well, it turns out that that law was already unconstitutional because in the 90s, <clears throat> the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit had struck it down in a case called Loper. And apparently the police department didn't get the memo and they continued to arrest people for it. And we're talking five, six, seven, eight years later, cops on the beat were still arresting people, including Eric Hofstad. So long story short, I was appointed to Eric Hofstad. I did not know about Loper. And unfortunately, Eric Hofstad also, when he was arrested, was searched, all right, because they knew Eric Hofstad was someone who was known to the New Rochelle Police Department. And they searched him and they found a crack stem in his sock, I believe. Mm -hmm. and you know they took him in and um i got appointed to represent him for criminal possession of controlled substance a misdemeanor as well as the loitering for panhandling and the case was adjourned a couple of times and eric didn't was not a newcomer to the legal system so i had a lot of cases I was quite busy and i got a letter one day from eric costed yo mr berman what about this case and he didn't even give me the case but at the jail other uh defendants we're reading the New York Daily News, which is a tabloid, and you're from downstate, so you know what this is like. And the 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 paper that Eric sent me was the headline was Beggar's Payday. So there was a beggar on Fordham Road in the Bronx named Eddie Wise, and Eddie Wise had sued the city of New York for repeatedly arresting him for peaceful panhandling, just standing there and saying, can I have some money? And the cops came over and arrested him. He got a huge payday, like $100,000. And the the, uh, the New York Daily News wrote a front page story about Eddie Wise, the richest beggar of, that was the time. Eddie Wise, the richest beggar of Fordham Road. And uh, Hofstede sent me this article about Eddie Wise and I was immediately struck by, I couldn't believe it, that Eddie Wise was able to sue the city of New York. And in fact, there was a class action lawsuit pending on behalf of the homeless and people who were panhandling because of all the civil rights damages that were accruing because the New York City Police Department was continually arresting the homeless for panhandling. And so um, one thing led to another, and uh, I then got a phone call from a professor at uh, Columbia Law School because somehow or other through the network of uh, uh, civil rights attorneys, a professor named Michael Dorff heard that I was representing someone and trying to get rid of this begging charge based on free speech. Okay, that's the theory that mm-hmm. begging is no different from what the Salvation Army does. Salvation Army has guys dressed up as Santa Claus and they're ringing a bell and they got a little can and they're asking for money and they're asking for donations. And the uh, courts had found in Loper and um, in uh, the Eddie Wise case that um a panhandler is a charity of one it's an individual who has a message saying you know pay no mind to the guy in the santa hat i'm a worthwhile charity as well please give me some money and the courts agreed the courts agreed first amendment so uh i got a professor named michael dorf involved and we dismissed uh eric kofstead's um uh 
prosecution. He was freed and the case was appealed and it dragged on for several years. And during the time of the litigation, the New York State Legislature saw the light and they took the law off the books. So that was actually one of the most impactful cases in my career because parallel to this litigation that went to the New York Court of Appeals, the New York State Legislature realized that if they didn't get rid of that loitering for panhandling, they were going to face millions and millions of dollars in liability from people that were continuing to get arrested for panhandling. It's an incredible case. And I really was there at the ground level because thanks to Mike Dorff and a team of uh, actually a couple law students, we fought this case all the way up to the New York Court of Appeals and we won. Wow. Yep. Fascinating. Absolutely. It is great. And I recommend anybody who's listening to this to look up the case of Eric Hofstad. It's on my website. And I was interviewed by CBS uh, Radio. Uh, there was an article in the New York Times. It was like my Andy Warhol moment. I mean, I was really talking to the media a lot. It was a lot of fun. Uh, oh, and your website? You, you could drop it right now. CarlBerman.com. There it is. C-A-R-L-B-I-R-M-A-N.com. There it is. I will be checking out the case after this. Yep. Yep. I, it's it's absolutely fascinating. I love the intricacy of it all. The First Amendment invocement with the Salvation Army. That was really, really interesting. I will be looking into that later. Absolutely. Um, but switching gears a little bit, a little bit more of a, I guess, a personal question, if you don't mind. Um, you know, due to working, you got your own law firm, you know, entrepreneur, it's, it's a real one, it's not a one man show, but you know, you're, you're doing it. Uh, you know, when, when you're not doing any of that, what is an ideal, you know, I'm not sure if you're a night owl morning guy, but you know, it's Friday night, Sunday morning, what does that look like? Ideal. Friday night sleeping, Sunday morning, I should be sleeping. Um, I'm at the age and I think anyone over the age of about 35 falls into the same bracket you have to have work-life balance. And I'm a strong believer that the true like soul and character of a human being is from 5 p.m. till 9 a.m. And if you don't have good work-life balance, you will burn out. Law is a profession where people do burn out. And I know this from going back to reunions from Duke because remember, I had that whole chunk of time from 1987 when I graduated till about 2004 when I was not in the courtroom. And so when I hit hit the courtroom starting in the early 2000s, um, I had a lot of energy from having done this other work and my my fellow alumni were burning out and a lot of them did burn out and a lot of them just disappeared. And it's quite sad. So you need to have that work life balance and you need to find something other than alcohol or drugs um, or uh, any other addiction to find balance, be it spirituality, be it nature, be it creativity, be it just family. What about just family? Mm -hmm. Family and, and family can be your chosen family. It can be your tribe. Because again, one of my dearest, dearest friends from law school is someone who, um, how shall I say it, hasn't had a conventional path in his, you know, personal trajectory. Uh, so I know how that can be. And when we're young, we have this stereotype, hey, I'm going to be successful and I'm going to get married and I'm going to have three kids and I'm going to have, you know, dog running around in the backyard and this and this and this. And life has a way of throwing curves at you. So work-life balance, work-life balance is so important. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I'm only I'm only 20 years old, but I know all too well that uh, life is never, ever perfect. Unfortunately, nothing's ever perfect. But that's the beauty of it, isn't it? Isn't it? You know, the, the... It's the beauty and it's the tragedy because you really only get one crack at it. And to quote one of my favorite movies, which I highly recommend, it has nothing to do with the law. But in the movie, um, a kid is struggling and his teacher says, hey, what does it say on that on that, you know, on the bulletin board? And she reads it to him. It says, yesterday is over and done, but tomorrow is ours to win or lose. Now, for many years, I would have really recoiled at that because I'm not competitive. I'm not into sports. But this kid was a sporty guy. This was a middle school kid who was really sporty, but he was struggling in the classroom. And I think that that was helpful to him because we can all learn from our mistakes, but, but not get trapped in them. And then to, mm -hmm. just, just, to just let it go. You have to let it go. Absolutely, absolutely. I I, I couldn't agree more with that. Uh, you know, as as a philosophy major, but I, I I like reading philosophy in my free time as well. That that's a very big message. You know, don't don't identify with your mistakes. Learn from them. Grow from them. Uh, well, I mean, Nate, this is your podcast, but can I am I allowed to ask you a question? You can ask me a question for sure. So, how does a philosophy major rationalize going to law school? And I I have an answer because another friend of mine did that. He went from philosophy to law, but I want to hear your, your, um, so with it. So when I came originally, when I came to, uh, SUNY Albany, I was a political science major, uh, but the readings did not exactly interest me. And I was like, I don't know if I want to do this for the next four years, but as I was doing my classes, I was doing some reading of philosophy in my free time. And I was like, oh, this is a lot of fun. I enjoyed this. So I decided that's what I was going to do. It was more of just like what, when I'm what I'm doing with my time, you know, I need to get good grades, obviously. Uh, so it's like, you know, I enjoy reading uh, philosophy, but I had the pleasure of taking introduction to logic and I fell in love. And I was like, oh, my goodness. Um, and I never really considered myself to be much of a logical thinker, but yeah. really, really enjoyed that class. And if anyone listening, go, go into Albany. It is a math credit. So if you need to take the gen ed for the math, I really suggest that class, especially if you're uh, preparing for the LSAT, because it has a lot. Oh, even though they just took off the logic games, whatever. I forgot about that. But it is good for getting kind of a logical kind right. of. So getting back to the law, I want to throw a curve at that, because if you're thinking that you're hopefully and feeling that your philosophy training is going to help you in law school, um, I hope you're not going to be disabused of that and disappointed, because the problem with the law is much of the law is based on two problems, bad facts and bad law. Mm -hmm. Okay, And litigators are often trained to think if the law is not on your side, argue the facts. If the facts are not on your side, argue the law. If both the law and the facts are not on your side, tell the client that we need to retool our strategy because we're going to lose. But this is what shapes the law is very often bad facts, bad facts. And then even when we have good facts, we have bad law. Mm -hmm. So you go from a topic that's so kind of abstract and pure like logic and then when you read judicial decisions it's obvious that judges are really struggling because facts are incredibly messy judges are human beings judges make mistakes as mm -hmm. much as they try and be logical you could read a 30 40 50 page decision and you're like oh my god 
this sounds so good, but where is this going? And then at the end, it's like devastating because the decision is just wrong. Mm -hmm. Where's the logic at the end? And, you know, the law is both a science and an art. I would hope to, 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 to feel after all these years that, that philosophy is a science, but law is more of an art than a science. And it's a very subjective uh, art more than a science. Um, but um, I think philosophy is a fantastic foundation because I took a class uh, in college on jurisprudence. And that's something, obviously, if you have it available, that you should do mm -hmm. before you become a 1L because, because you'll need it. You'll need it. And they may offer it. But if they don't, jurisprudence is a wonderful, wonderful subject, philosophy of law. Uh, oh, we do have a philosophy of law class uh, at Albany. Uh, I haven't I haven't registered for my classes yet, so I will definitely be looking. That'll be that'll be as a senior. Uh, it would be for next semester. As a junior. Yes, as a junior. Excellent, excellent. Um, but it's it, speaking kind to the uh, law of being more of an art. I I had I got to experience that a little bit over the summer. I worked at uh, the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office. I interned there at the uh, at. Uh, the asset forfeitures office. Shout out to everyone in there. Um, but one of the attorneys in there, uh, Joe McCarthy, shout out him. Uh, he really sat me down and kind of told me everything and explained to me, you know, you're going to have all these books in front of you and you're really just going to be looking at cases and figuring out, you know, matching, you know, fact patterns to the law and, you know, really figuring it out in that a lot of the times at the end of the day, you'll read it all, like you said, and you'll be like, how did they, uh, how did they come to this decision? Uh, so that was definitely a new reality to me and kind of shook up the whole logical thing in my head. But I really, I, I enjoyed uh, doing that over the summer and, and, and learning it. And, you know, it, it further motivated me to, to go to law school. Um, and I think as in the past couple of minutes, we've been talking a lot of, of wisdom in a sort of way. You talk about work-life balance, uh, you know, growing from those problems. And, you know, we're, we're here at the final segment, uh, the little words of wisdom. Carl, what are some words of wisdom for the law students out there, uh, the aspiring law students, even the current attorneys? You know, I knew you were going to ask that question because I obviously listened to Brian's uh, interview and I had an answer, but that was several hours ago. And uh, I guess I didn't get enough sleep last night, so I forgot what I'd come up with. But the first word that comes to mind is uh, humility. And that's really helpful because I find myself at least once a month in the following scenario. Your Honor, may we approach? That's in criminal court. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now I'm inches away from the bench. And I'm looking in the eyes of the court. This is not, oh, the human being so-and-so, the elected political judge of Schenectady, et cetera, et cetera, which is where I do most of my work. This is the court. So it requires the utmost deference when I open my mouth at the bench and I'm whispering because we're off the record. I don't want the general public or my client to hear. This is an off-the-record sidebar. Humility, humility. This is three people, the prosecutor, the defense lawyer, and the judge. They're all really smart people. So now I got to really choose my words carefully. <clears throat> um, 
sense of humor would be the second point um, because if humility doesn't get me to that destination of whatever I'm trying to say in that informal context, being able to laugh at myself or laugh at the situation is really, really good. Um, and I think that's all I want to say because very often I find, um, you know, um, C.1, humility, sense of humor, and then go back to humility. Maybe that doesn't work, then try a little more humor. And that doesn't work, go back and... So sometimes the solution is staring right at us. We just have to keep playing with it and keep struggling. I write legal briefs all the time, and sometimes I just know, eh, today's not the right day. And no matter how hard I work, I'm like killing it here. Just back off, mm -hmm. sense of humor, Look at it, laugh at it, whatever. So those would be my two takeaways. All right. Well, Carl, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. I really do appreciate it. And for everyone tuning in out there, thank you for listening. And I will see you in the next one.